Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. If you think about it, the journalism is a means to an end, but that doesn't mean that the journalism itself becomes something else. It is still the, the kind of, well, we can debate objectivity, but, you know, the, the kind of objective, fact-based and professional journalism that any newsroom would use. In recent years, we've seen the tools of journalism used by bad actors to give legitimacy to fake news. But those same tools can be just as powerful in affecting social good and addressing humanitarian needs. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Heba Ali is the CEO of The New Humanitarian, an independent nonprofit newsroom covering humanitarian crises. She's here today to tell us how The New Humanitarian has thrived during the coronavirus pandemic. Heba, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. So first of all, you know, usually I ask people to tell me about themselves. But let's start out with The New Humanitarian. What can you tell me about that? You know, what's the mission and how did it come about? The New Humanitarian was actually founded as IRIN, I-R-I-N, a horrible acronym, and that's because it was founded by the United Nations in the wake of the Rwandan genocide in 1995. And as you know, that was a, a terrible genocide and so many people died. And humanitarian responders at the time felt that had they been able to better share information about who was doing what, they could have saved more lives. And so we began really as a kind of information coordination product under the helm of the UN. And then over the, the years and decades evolved to become the bona fide newsroom that we are today in really moving towards a much more journalistic approach and, and growing our offices around the world from what was then an East Africa focus and incorporating much more storytelling to our approach. But that mission of, of really informing the way the world responds to crises has remained. How did you get involved with the new humanitarian? What, what's your background? I'm a Canadian, actually, raised to Egyptian parents. So I was living in Canada. I had studied journalism and human rights and was working at the time at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation covering local news. But my heart was always abroad. And one day my dad just put a brochure on my desk about an internship at a UN news outlet that I had never heard of and knew nothing about, but it covered humanitarian crises. And so it it married the two worlds that I was interested in, which was marginalized people and, and human rights issues with journalism. And so I headed off to Senegal to be an intern for this thing with a funny name, and now I run it. So it's been quite a long journey in between, but I'll spare you all the details. It's pretty cool that this started off with something that your father suggested and it turned into uh, your career, I guess. You know, how is your newsroom different than a newsroom for like a for-profit newsroom, somebody that's just covering the general news? I think two things. You know, when I worked at the CBC, I'd show up to work every day and every day I'd be handed a different topic to cover. And one day it could be climate change. And the next day it was Canadian politics. And the day after it was, you know, a story about some hero in the community. And you never were able to specialize in anything enough to really know uh, that kind of deeper layer. And so from a generalist news outlet to a specialist one, we just have a depth of knowledge that allows our journalism, we hope, to be much richer and ring much truer because we're following it day in and day out. We know what matters. We know, you know, the community that follows these issues. 
I guess the bigger part, though, is is around the motivations for what we do. We're driven by our mission, not by profit. And and that might seem small because, you know, you'll argue, well, New York Times journalists aren't driven by profit either, but it, it really does have a, a pretty profound impact on how you go about doing your journalism and, and the actual product. You're freed from the pressures of getting eyeballs for the sake of it, and we're much more focused on the impact of our journalism. We certainly face pressures from donors who fund our work in the same way that that advertisers or any other revenue stream will put pressure on the way you do your job. And we certainly have challenges around sustainability. But I'd say as a nonprofit, we have fared much better in the current environment compared to many commercial news outlets because we have a loyal audience that cares deeply about what we do and that that impact of our work, which has in our case become even more visible now than it's ever been, allows people to stick with us even even through difficult times. So it's really those values that kind of shape shape the way we go about our work, which is, you know, being really dignified in, in the way we treat the voices we cover, paying a lot of attention to which voices we're amplifying, ensuring that our journalism is constructive and not sensational. I mean, you could argue that's kind of good practice no matter who you are, but those values and that mission of improving the lives of people affected by crises really drive our work. I definitely see the advantage of having something that, that you're hyper-focused on, you know, a theme, a topic you know, these crises that that require a degree of understanding and uh, so that you can go deep on them. Would you describe this, I mean, is this advocacy journalism or is this something different? No, I absolutely don't think it's advocacy journalism. I understand why people think so. Mission-driven journalism is different. Advocacy means you're going out with a point of view and you're trying to get that point of view across. Mission-driven journalism means you want to have an impact, but you're not determining what that positive impact should be. You're just doing your work in a way that you hope will be a benefit to society. So if you think about ProPublica, for example, they say that they're pro-reform. That doesn't mean that they are going to dictate what reform should take place, but they think that reform in general will lead to better policy for society. So that's the way we approach our work. We use the professional tool of independent journalism towards a positive impact. If you think about it, the journalism is a means to an end, but that doesn't mean that the journalism itself becomes something else. It is still the the kind of, well, we can debate objectivity, but, you know, the, the kind of objective, fact-based and professional journalism that any newsroom would use. Okay, so there, there's not a political agenda or there's not a particular one side that you're focusing on, although one could argue that, you know, covering something like climate change or, you know, maybe even some of the refugee stories, somebody could say, well, that's that's more of a you know, a right or left issue you're, you're sort of advocating, but that's not part of, of your focus. If we have a side, and I, I wouldn't put it in that way, but if, if we had a side, it would be in the interest of people who are affected by crises. So we are trying to ensure that their voice is heard and we're trying to ensure that policies that are taken are ultimately improving their lives. But again, if you look at any mainstream newsroom, the New York Times will say its mission is to enhance the well-being of society. So I think every newsroom has an objective that its work would be useful. And it's just that our the way we direct that is towards people who are affected by crises. But that doesn't mean that we would say crisis, uh, climate change is good or is bad. We would say climate change is having an impact on millions of people's lives. And here's what that looks like on the ground. I think all journalists today are grappling with some questions around where is the right line in terms of taking a stance on issues. And we saw that in 
the way the coverage of, for instance, Donald Trump played out in the United States, that it was no longer okay to just say, we're going to report the news objectively and just repeat what he says. If it was factually wrong, more and more newsrooms were taking a stance to say he's lying. And I think we're all starting to ask ourselves questions around that, right? Like at what point do you say climate change is a crisis? And that's an undeniable fact. We're still having those debates internally about the extent to which we should be ready to take more of a stance because I think our values are pretty clear when you look at the kind of stuff we cover. But what I can say now is that we err on the side of, of marginalized people and try to produce journalism that is at their service. Yeah. You know, one of the things about this podcast is, you know, I've been talking to a lot of journalists, you know, for eight years. And over the last couple of years, I've seen a frustration in some journalists, this idea that the stuff that they're doing doesn't matter. They're not able to tell the whole story. They're not able to advocate for something because they feel that, well, this is really kind of what's important. And this is what the story is. So I think your type of I can see how the appeal of this type of journalism, this mission driven journalism, that using those tools to tell a story, give voice to those populations to at least cover the issues around those populations that are not usually covered. Exactly. And I think more and more, that's the journalism of the future, kind of mission-driven, nonprofit journalism that is of public service. And we saw that in the in the COVID pandemic, which many have described as an existential threat to the news media industry, a lot of those who emerged from it stronger were nonprofits because their mission and their public service purpose carried them through. And that was certainly the case for us, where suddenly, you know, our beat was center stage and everyone was waking up to the importance of having reliable information about humanitarian crises. And I don't know that, you know, a mainstream middle-sized American newspaper that's writing the same thing that everyone else is writing is going to have as much of a value proposition in that kind of a crunch. Yeah, I think COVID is going to change. I think we're going to see a lot of impact of that on the way journalists and newsrooms are covering issues because, you know, obviously there were people who were trying to politicize that that story, but at the end of the day, you know, getting accurate information out to people, you know, was incredibly important. And the audience recognized that they, they needed a source of good information. So, but since you brought up COVID, one of the things that that I was looking at through your materials is that the new humanitarian has thrived during the COVID crisis. How have you been able to do that? I think it's a few things and and I've thought a lot about it and tried to kind of pinpoint exactly what it was. And, and I don't think there's a silver bullet, but first, as I mentioned, our, our beat just really matters. And our audience, I know this is the case for many newsrooms, but our audience tripled during the pandemic because people were just yearning for reliable information about crises. And that's not just the international policymakers that we usually, um, that usually kind of dominate our audience, but even people in countries affected by COVID. So for instance, Tanzania, we had done a piece about how the true toll of the virus was being hidden by the government and spoke to doctors and kind of unearthed the real numbers. And that was shared wildly across the country because people were looking for reliable information that they could trust on this and they couldn't trust their own governments. And so they were looking for that kind of independent, trusted media voice. So that's one example. But I think on a global level, you know, as I said, there's perhaps a renewed recognition of the importance of this kind of work. More broadly, I think, you know, even before COVID, our staffing was extremely decentralized. We have 
uh, regional editors who are based in the regions that they cover. We try to really avoid covering the world from New York and London and to have a much more on the ground feel to what we do. And that really saved us because we had a network of freelance correspondents in some 70 countries who were already based in those countries. And so when you could no longer travel, we weren't stuck because we weren't depending on parachuting people in. And so we were able to continue our work in many cases, of course, there was additional challenges, but in many ways, kind of unhampered compared to stories that I heard, you know, the BBC trying to set up a makeshift studio in people's homes and everything kind of being out of whack. We were just used to working in a really decentralized way. And I guess the last thing is the is our business model. We weren't dependent on advertising. And I think that's what a lot of newsrooms really felt the crunch in. And we were dependent on donors who valued our work. And if anything, actually, our funding has gone up through this pandemic because those donors have recognized the need for this even more. So I don't know what, you know, if there are lessons there, of course, every every crisis will have a different set of winners and losers. But certainly, I think the nonprofit model is starting to show where it's more resilient than some of the commercial and for-profit models. I read the story the you humanitarian had done, how coronavirus hit aid in a, a Yemeni doctor's diary. It's very powerful. Can you sort of talk about that story, how that came about, and you know how that's sort of an example of the type of work that you can do? Absolutely. And I'm glad you pointed that one out because it it's one that we're really proud of. And it actually just recently won uh, One World Media Award. We went into it really wanting to show how Corona took over the life of this community in southern Yemen and what Corona looks like in a place that had already been decimated by years of war and economic collapse. And, and that was just more broadly, you know, when the pandemic hit, one of our real priorities especially at the time when it was just starting in Europe, was to remind the world that this could be even worse and much, much worse in other parts of the world that won't have the same infrastructure, the same medical facilities, the same resources. And this was the case study of that, really. And it came about just because a journalist we had worked with before was in Aden and when the virus hit and she had known that a doctor that she had already been in touch with was keeping a diary and he hadn't been comfortable handing it over because he was, I think, worried about how it would be handled. And that's where those values that I talked about earlier come in, where he ultimately trusted us to give us his story because he knew or he felt confident that we would treat it with dignity and with respect. And it was super long, unedited, it took a lot of work to put it into the format that, that we ultimately published. But we felt it was a really powerful example of I guess the universal story that we've all gone through, you know, where at first it's no big deal and then there's confusion about the symptoms and then some desperation. And then there's this line in the story about people dying like dominoes that's, that just never, it's just stuck in my mind. And I think we've all kind of gone through that cycle, but then you take that and you put it in another context in which you start to realize that coronavirus was not the great equalizer that everyone initially thought it was because in places like Southern Yemen, you don't have electricity much of the time. The medical service is, is completely destroyed. And then you get this really intimate look at what that means. And so through the story of Corona, we can tell the wider story of what it means to live in a crisis zone. And also a very personal story. And good journalism is always kind of a, about showing people somebody's life and sort of having them tell their story. And that's something that I, I just took away from it. Like I said, it was really powerful. You know, during 2020 in the United States, there were all of the Black Lives Matter protests. There you know, mm -hmm. calls for, for social justice. How has the, the new humanitarian covered that? 
That's been a really interesting journey for us because we have tended historically to really report about the so-called global south or developing world and not so much about the Western world. And when the protests broke out, I think we all felt, you know, that sense of this is a historic moment and tried to figure out what our place was in it. And we got a message from a reader actually that said something to the effect of, you know, given that the United States is is becoming a failed state with a, a dictatorial, these are her words, not mine, but a dictatorial leader, you know, racism by police against, or brutal violence by police against ethnic minorities, you know, COVID having some of the highest levels of, of deaths around the world, are you going to cover the United States as a humanitarian crisis the way you cover others? And we had a big debate about that internally because, you know, it raised a lot of questions about the assumptions we make about what is a crisis and who are vulnerable people and who are the, the kind of powerful people who've, who've gotten it right. And we ultimately had a conversation, a live event around it in which we had a number of American and African and other racial justice activists pointing to what was really the, the neo-colonial roots of aid and the hypocrisy that underpins the entire structure. And so it became actually a pretty dominant theme of our work over the last year in looking at some of the structural racism within the aid industry, but also these kind of deeper issues about the whole way that the structure was set up and how, you know, in some people's view, it has come to prop up or sustain an international system that keeps certain countries poor in perpetuity. So it, together with COVID, I mean, these are both world-changing events, but for us, they have kind of launched us into a real reflection through our our journalism, but also some of our opinion and commentary, as well as a new podcast we've just launched called Rethinking Humanitarianism on exactly that, rethinking the concept of humanitarianism and looking at in the modern era, what that should mean and, and what it means to help people. And that it's, you know, moving away from uh, we, the rich Western world, are going to help you poor Africans and understanding that actually we're all vulnerable and nobody's got it right and we all need to be helping each other. So that's been a real interesting shift just in terms of the lens through which we we see our work. It's pretty amazing when you, when you think, and because we've talked here about COVID and we've talked about Black Lives Matter and social justice protests, this is all in a very incredible way. These are all parts of the same kind of story because it's, mm -hmm. it's tied to, it's tied to immigration. It's tied to the, the Syrian refugees. It's tied to healthcare. Um, justice. And justice. Exactly. Right. That all of the, the structure, the system that has been set up is built on, you know, systematic racism and what that means for populations all around the world, not just in the United States. And I'm glad you, you mentioned the thing about the Western world, you know, going to fix other traditionally going to fix third world nations, that that was the way our kind of humanitarianism worked. You know, tell me a little bit more about this discussion as far as your newsroom, as far as the way you approach telling those types of stories. Yes, this is just, I think, the top priority for us and for every news organization today to be thinking about what it means to decolonize our own journalism. And we've been thinking a lot about this in recent months. I will not even pretend that we have all the answers, but it's certainly something that we have committed to trying to navigate. You know, often the conversations around diversity in the media come down to your staffing. Are the people that you cover reflected and represented in your teams? And that's certainly an important piece of it. And 
we are thinking deeply about how we ensure that we're not, again, a, a newsroom of largely Westerners reporting about the rest of the world. And that's really complicated, right? You know, when you set out to build a diverse newsroom, you realize how hard it is because people of diverse backgrounds often haven't gotten the same opportunities and privileges. And so when you compare a CV to another, it's just not a fair, not a fair fight. And so how do you create the opportunities to build that talent and to mentor and nurture people so that they have those same opportunities as others who have historically been much more privileged? So that's part of it. I mean, we've always tried to work with local journalists to amplify local voices and to really, as I was saying earlier, kind of work from the ground up. But often that entails, and anyone who works in international media will know, kind of rewriting Stringer copy to fit our own Western standards of what quality is. And so we've been thinking deeply about that too. How does our coverage change as a result of these reflections? And I think what that comes down to is looking at how is our coverage received by the people about whom we write? Would they see themselves in it? Not just do they feel, you know, have they been quoted and do they feel represented, but who's shaping that agenda and does it reflect their priorities? And so that is a really, really complicated shift for a newsroom to make, I think, to let go of control and say, we're not going to be the ones deciding what's important, but we're going to let the people that we are meant to serve define what's important. And so that's the kind of shift, the journey that we're seeking to go on now is to think about, and we're actually hoping to convene other newsrooms and have this reflection together, but to think about how do we, how can we make that happen in our day-to-day journalism? What are the products that come out of that. And I think because of our values and our kind of very locally grounded approach, we're in a good position to drive that agenda forward or at least contribute to that conversation. It's really interesting because especially from a nonprofit newsroom, you're relying on donations from organizations that maybe have a particular, you know, we want to make sure that this this audience is covered or, or that these types of stories are being told. And so if the newsroom begins to open up and allow the the people that you're that you're trying to serve that you're trying to help sort of drive the narrative and maybe I'm just I'm imagining something that's not really an issue do you think that's something that would be a concern I think it's the opposite I think it'll open up new funding opportunities because there are more and more donors today who are also recognizing the shifts in the world around us and who want to be contributing to that decolonization agenda and that anti-racism agenda and they want to support initiatives and journalism and other efforts to get those voices heard. So I think it's not the driver for doing it, but I think we'll certainly be getting, I think it'll be, it's never easy to fundraise, but I think it it will be potentially easier to fundraise for some of this work because there's such, it's such an obvious need right now. and, And very few people are questioning whether it should be done. It's interesting because when you talk about diversity in newsrooms, I mean, many newsrooms, you know, last year because of Black Lives Matter, because of the social justice, the calls for social justice, you know, began to really take this idea of diversity in the newsroom really kind of seriously. But, you know, as you've kind of just said, part of it is, you know, your staff and creating these opportunities, but there's a lot more to it. And I think this is a process that's not just going to be handled by hiring 10 new people. Uh, mm-hmm. of color, it's going to be a whole sort of tectonic shift of the newsroom, I think. This is not something that's going to be, be fixed in a couple of months. A couple of years ago, I, you know, 2019, I, I kind of fell down this rabbit hole with the podcast because we had these series of interviews, and the word that, that kept popping up was empathy. 
journalism of empathy. What role does empathy play in the type of news that you cover? I would hope that empathy plays a role in every type of journalism, but it is especially important in the kind that we cover because one of the challenges of doing this work is that people get tired of hearing bad news and people get tired of having to absorb all of these crises happening all over the world. And it becomes really easy to shut all of that out and just focus on your own day-to-day and, and your own bubble. And one of the ways of breaking that is through creating a universal narrative. And that depends on empathy. And it depends on being able to see yourself in that position. And so some of the things we do, for instance, when we're reporting about displaced people in a refugee camp is to try to draw out that actually that mother in the refugee camp under, you know, scorching heat and in a tent that has holes and that leaks water and all the rest of it is actually looking for the same thing that you are sitting in, I don't know, Wisconsin or wherever else, which is a good education for your children to be able to put food on the table, et cetera. And so creating that sense of empathy and connection and understanding is kind of key to being able to resonate and get that message from a very different world across. So I see it as as essential. But I mean, I come from a belief that journalism is about helping people understand each other and that applies to any any kind of beat that you're covering. So for me, empathy is, is central. So Heba, tell me about your podcast. So both COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement, I think have driven a conversation in the humanitarian sector that has become pretty existential about what's the best way to help people in need in an era in which, as we've talked about, you know, everyone is vulnerable in an era in which the kind of things that humanitarian aid workers used to respond to in other parts of the world, they're now having to respond to back home. And that spurred a lot of thinking around what are alternative models for humanitarian aid and alternative models for the world more broadly, just to respond to what are becoming increasing crises. We haven't even talked about climate change, and we know that's barreling towards us as well. And so the Rethinking Humanitarianism podcast is about exploring ideas around the limits of the current humanitarian response system and looking at what might replace it or other forms that are starting to emerge as we've seen mutual solidarity rising, for instance. We've seen a lot of examples of locally driven aid. And these models are becoming more and more common and more and more needed in an era in which the the international system has kind of reached its limits. So that's what we dive into on the podcast. And if you're interested, you can find it uh, on Spotify, Apple, and, and everywhere else, Rethinking Humanitarianism. You know, I mentioned this before that, you know, I've talked to a lot of journalists who feel frustrated by the the type of journalism they're doing and are looking for opportunities to do sort of what you're doing at the New Humanitarian. What would you, what advice would you give them to sort of pursue a career like that? To be frank, it's really hard. It's, <laughs> um, it's hard on a whole bunch of fronts in terms of logistics and access and financing. This stuff is expensive. Getting the trust of communities, language barriers, all kinds of things. But more so it's hard, you know, philosophically for the reasons I talked about in terms of getting people to care, breaking through with these kinds of stories. Emotionally, it's hard for the journalists themselves often to be constantly covering these really difficult stories. But it's just so, so important. And I just can't imagine what our world becomes when we don't have journalists covering this kind of this kind of story. And there was a period, as you know, when when international 
coverage by U.S. mainstream media dropped so significantly. And, and that's really scary when you think about what that, what that creates, how insular we become. And we keep talking about filter bubbles in, these, in this day and age. We often think about that in political terms, but it's equally true in this kind of geographic world, right, where you end up in a little filter bubble of, of, your, own, of your own world and you forget about everything else that's going on out there. And as we know today, the world is so interconnected that you can't forget about what's going on out there. And if you manage to vaccinate all of the Western world and you've got coronavirus raging in the rest of the world, it's going to come back and bite you. So I think today the the role of international journalism is even more important than ever. And, and as I was saying earlier, specialist public service journalism, I think is the journalism of the future. And as we look at the challenges facing the media, both the trust in the media and the business model having an engaged audience that is deeply connected to the issues that you cover is going to be key to solving both those problems. And I think that it is this kind of journalism that can reach those kinds of engaged audiences in this way. So I'd say this is the future. If you're interested in being part of the progressive journalism of the future, I can't think of a better beat and a better type of journalism than, than the kind that we do. I've been talking to Heba Ali about the new humanitarian, about humanitarian journalism, journalism with a mission. Heba, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.